Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. Now, if a band reunites with only one of its original members, is it still the original band? If you go to see Journey without Steve Perry, and you have as good a time as you would have with Steve Perry in Journey, who gets hurt? We'll discuss when a reunion is really a reunion. Plus, Vampire Weekend is out with their first new album in six years. We're going to give our takes. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, Greg, we are going to be talking about reunion tours. This summer is lousy with them. Some of them are good, uh, some of them are not. When does a reunion work, and when doesn't it? We'll try to dive into that. But first, let's review some new music. We took a vow in summertime, now we find ourselves in late December. I believe that New Year's Eve will be the perfect time for their great surrender, but they don't remember. That's a little bit of Harmony Hall, a track from the new Vampire Weekend album, Father of the Bride, the fourth Vampire Weekend studio album. It's first in six years. The last one came out in 2013. This quartet uh, out of Columbia University in New York, uh, circa 2006, Jim, remember the hype when that self-titled debut album came out in 2008? Oh, it, it, it was unbearable, The yes. anticipation. Here's this uh, new wavish indie rock band uh, flirting with these world music rhythms on uh, their debut record, topped by Ezra Koenig's English Major Lyrics. And uh, <laughs> we have had uh, a couple of albums since then. Uh, they have grown from a much-hyped debut album into a major festival act. Uh, Contra came out in 2010, Modern Vampires of the City in 2013. They've been playing various festivals in the years since, and meanwhile, working on this fourth studio album. It is finally out. Father of the Bride is here. Here is another track from it before we review it. It's called Married in a Gold Rush on Sound Opinions. Something's happening in the country. And the government's to blame We got married in a gold rush And the rush has never felt the same Shared a moment in a cafe Shared a kiss in pouring rain well, We got married in a gold rush And the side of gold will Train the gold one west down 
That is Married in a Gold Rush by Vampire Weekend from its fourth album, Father of the Bride. Greg, uh, Ezra Koenig, and the boys have been describing it as their springtime album, their sunny album. At one point, he sings, Presented with darkness, we turn to the light. Could have been smart, we're just unbearably bright. Mm. Unbearably bright. And they have been from day one. I've had serious problems with this band. Starting with Ezra's voice, it bugs me. Continuing with the lyrics, used to be Oxford commas and mansard roofs and uh, horchata. And now he's name-dropping Diego Garcia and Keats and Yates. We go together like Keats and Yates, bowls and plates. God, I mean, I, it, it's sort of tongue-in-cheek, uh, over-the-top pretension, but it's annoying nonetheless. You know, then there's the big cultural appropriation of Paul Simon's cultural appropriation of great South African rhythms. I went back to our previous reviews of Va- Vampire Weekend Records. I, you know, I said something nice about Contra. I yeah. do think this is one of the best rhythm sections in rock today, and live especially, much more so than on record, in some of those festival settings you were mentioning. I have had you know, a good time to Vampire Weekend because it's impossible to resist those rhythms. The worst thing about this record is that it's all in one mid-tempo groove. It's as if uh, Ezra has gotten tired of ripping off Graceland-era Paul Simon and now is, like, uh, doing a little Graceland, complete with the Soweto choirs, right? Uh, But mainly doing, uh, you know, Simon and Garfunkel without the Garfunkel harmonies. It's a folk record stuck in a mid-tempo groove. Uh, it's just like, I, I never want to have to listen to this record again. I resent you for wanting to even review it. I don't know who missed Vampire Weekend over the last six years, but I certainly didn't. Uh, you know, whatever they had, they gave us on the first two records. There is just no point for this band to exist in 2019. Well, I don't know. I think there's there's a lot of fans out there who would totally disagree with you. I mean, the fe- they're a festival headlining band. They're one of the few rock bands. See, but I see that, that as can an play insult, a festival not headline a and, and draw a big crowd, which is uh, saying something in this era when when rock is uh, no longer on the ascent. You know, I think what's happening here is I'm hearing this as more of an Ezra Koenig solo record under the guise of Vampire Weekend. There's a, there's very much a sense that he's kind of the main guy in the band. I guess he always has been as the singer and lyricist and you know, kind of uh, driving engine musically. But as you said, Jim, I think the the rhythm section was very strong. I think they were emphasizing some of those multicultural rhythms uh, more emphatically on the earlier records. You know, there was a lot of Paul Simon art pop uh, on top of these kind of, uh, you know, uh, exotic grooves. Uh, and, and that was a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your point of view. There were some people who accused them of, you know, cultural appropriation, which, you know, had a certain amount of truck. You know, who are these Columbia University students playing these South African grooves? But, you know, as pure pop and, and check, you know, check your brain at the door, listen to it uh, as, as just a pure pop experience. I think they made some catchy songs. There are more catchy songs on this record. But you are right that it is more in one sort of area, more contemplative. Uh, there's sort of a... a a countryish feel. He's mentioned Casey Musgraves as an influence, and there are three distinctively country-ish, not country, but country-ish songs. You know, hold you now. Leaving now your wedding day. 
Married in a Gold Rush, We Belong Together, Another Country Vibe. What I found interesting is the number of guests on this record. You know, there's members of Beck's band, Dirty Projectors, Haim, Jenny Lewis. You know, it, it, it seems to be more of this project around the Ezra Koenig experience. You know, I don't, I'm not greatly disturbed by this record, nor am I greatly inspired by it. I, I think it's kind of like a, to me, it's a pleasant pop record. I can understand why people like it. It's catchy and, and, and certainly uh, isn't going to disrupt anyone's day. But at the same time, I don't find it all that challenging. <laughs> My life is too short for pleasant, man. Yeah. That's one of those rock critic weasel words. The only one worse is interesting. Well, but it's accurate. Um, unfortunately, it's accurate. And I, I think that's exactly the way I experience this record is it that, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not offended by it. I'm just not moved by it either. But enough of our pleasant opinions. We want to hear from you. What do you think of the new Vampire Weekend album? Call 888-859-1800 and leave us a message. Coming up, we'll talk to music journalist Rob Tannenbaum about band reunions. Are they worth it? That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRigatis. And uh, hey, summer's coming. And along with the sunshine and the uh, warmer temperatures, thank you very much, uh, comes a myriad of music festivals and big arena tours. And uh, we're going to see a lot of reunited bands. That's what that really means. This summer, we've already got Mata Hoople on the road, plus Heart, Wu-Tang Clan, Hootie and the Blowfish. I've been and waiting then, for that. And then there are the reunited bands who are always playing like Styx and Foreigner. However, many original members of these bands have died, become estranged, or are afflicted with uh, health issues that uh, prevented them from touring at all or performing at all. And sometimes there is only one original member of the group left and not even maybe the lead singer or guitarist. So, you know, we question, is that really a reunion? Uh, and as a music fan, do you care? Music journalist Rob Tannenbaum recently wrote about this topic of reunions for the New York Times. Rob, welcome to Sound Opinions. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're most welcome. Uh, it is a chronic problem in the summer of the big arena shed tour season. The, the thing I miss least about having <laughs> been a pop music critic at the Sun-Times, this challenge of going to see a band, and then you're looking on stage at the band, and you barely recognize mm. anybody in the band. <laughs> It was advertised as sticks, but where's Dennis D. Young? And so on and so forth. Uh, you, you started this piece in the New York Times uh, about uh, Mata Hoople. I did. And it's really just Ian Hunter. Well, he can't really do a reunion of the 1972 Mata because there were four other guys, two of them are dead, and one is incapacitated by a stroke. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of damp dampens uh. a reunion. But what he did, I thought, demonstrated an unusual level of honesty. He's not calling this Mata which he probably could do legally. He could probably put together a band with the three of us and yeah. call that Mata Hoople. Yeah, right. 
But this lineup that he's touring with is the 1974 edition of Mata Hoople, the, the final lineup of the band. And so he's calling this Mata Hoople 74. And when I saw that, I thought, why aren't more bands doing things uh, that are that honest, that are that forthright with their fans? And the answer to the question is because they're going to sell fewer tickets that yeah. way. Do you think that happened with with Mata Hoople? Because that tour seems to be getting uh, universally positive accolades. Well, it, and maybe this will be the test case that uh, makes Styx change their name from Styx to Styx minus Dennis DeYoung. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, Dennis DeYoung tours playing the music of Styx. Right. I'm sailing away. While Sticks, who putatively hate Dennis DeYoung, tour with a guy who's imitating Dennis DeYoung while singing Dennis DeYoung's songs. Right, right. Faux Dennis DeYoung. Because I've got to be free. Free to face the life that's ahead of me. And I think one of the things about Styx is that they tour relatively frequently without uh, Dennis DeYoung. I think the one difference here with the Mata Hoople tour, it's a very limited tour. It's the first time they've been in the United States in 45 years. So there's a selling point there. You know, it, it, it's almost like you could throw any version of Mata Hoople up there. And there would be a core audience out there to see that show. They're playing theaters. They're not overplaying. You know, they're not doing the arena of the stadiums. What kills me, Rob, though, and this has been an ongoing story, as you well know, for decades now. We've seen these reunions, which are partial reunions. I remember I drew kind of the line in the sand. One of my favorite bands of all time, The Who, uh, got back together again after Keith Moon died. And I said, that's not The Who anymore without Keith Moon. He was not the lead singer. He was not the songwriter. But he was a critical part of their sound. And I didn't see it as The Who anymore. But you're right, if they went out as Townsend and Daltrey and Entwistle at that time, it would have been a totally different uh, set of parameters from a, uh, a money uh, standpoint. So there's it, it, it simply a case, as you said, money talks. How can a legit Journey fan, though, go out and see Journey without Steve Perry singing those songs? Let me explain how, because at the top of this segment, you said that this was a chronic problem. And having written an article about this, I'm now going to counter-argue that it's not a chronic problem. And the reason is, the three of us talking today, and probably most of the people who are going to listen to this show, have abnormal relationships with music. <laughs> mm -hmm. It is way too important to us. We spend way too much time thinking about it, talking about it, analyzing it. Most people just want to hear some good songs and party. So if you go to see Journey without Steve Perry and you have as good a time as you would have with Steve Perry in Journey, who gets hurt?
And there are plenty of people like that. Phil Carson, yeah. who manages Foreigner, a band that tours with only one original member, who sometimes isn't present for the shows. Phil Carson said 90% of the audience doesn't even know who's in Foreigner. Mm-hmm. And that may sound like he's insulting his own band, but I think he's just giving a realistic depiction of the landscape. Most fans don't know, don't care. Personally, I love the band Television. Television for the last couple of years have been playing without Richard Lloyd, the yeah. second guitarist. I am not going to go see them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Forget it. Right. Because to me, without Richard Lloyd, it's not television. Right. But I'm crazy. Well, see, I can see both sides of this. In part, if it is not all of the original musicians or the people that originally had this chemistry together, that wrote these songs, that crafted this sound, why not just go see the Country Bear Jamboree? Let's get some animatronic dummies up there playing this music. If it doesn't matter to the fans, uh, you know, they can hear this music. You know, I mean, Kraftwerk, if we want to get eggheady about it, uh, you know, uh, pioneered this postmodern simulacrum of the band when, as a group, they never much liked touring, so they sent the robots out to do it. Why not just do that? <laughs> Don't you think if that was feasible, Gene Simmons would have done I it a long time absolutely. ago? The one guy that absolutely. will do that is Gene Simmons. Kiss franchises, yeah. I think, are, are the future. Yeah, but, you know, on the other hand, like, for example, you know, the cover bands that exist uh, that do all of a Genesis album. Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Well, yeah, they're brilliant, or, right? They're brilliant. They're yeah, better they're than... really good. You know, if you saw Rutherford Collins yeah. and Banks today, yeah. they're, you know, they wouldn't, they're either They gonna, wouldn't do that good of a show. They wouldn't, no, they're doing We Can't Dance, you know, and <laughs> right. I want to hear The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. <laughs> right, right. Well, here, here's the difference. Here, here's why cover bands are a separate category. We know they're cover bands. If you took that exact band, that exact Genesis cover band, and put them on stage and played the exact same music and called them Genesis, people would be happy. Yeah, and they'd sell out an arena instead of a 1,200-seat a, a venue. Yeah. yeah that's so true. here's another example that I wrote about in my article, uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, uh, 19, late 1960s blues rock band out of New York. that at one point had eight original members. Now, even the phrase original members leads you into a swamp of legality because were they actually members? Were they legally, contractually members of the band? Did they co-own the trademark? And eventually, Blood, Sweat, and Tears ends up uh, with just one guy, Bobby Columbia, the drummer. The drummer! The drummer, yeah. right. The it's drummer. All, all about the horns for that band, right. and all they've got is the drummer. So Bobby Columbi continues on with different lineups for a while. And then David Clayton Thomas, who was not the original singer, 
says, hey, let me tour his blood, sweat, and tears. So Bobby Columbi rents the name <laughs> to David Clayton Thomas. Now, they don't like the, the word rent. They like license. Mm-hmm. But it's renting. And then at some point, David Clayton Thomas realizes this isn't viable anymore. So he gives up the name. Bobby Columbi gets it back. And he starts putting together a band of guys who are very good players who have no historical connection to Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And his argument is that going to see the band now is the equivalent of going to see the Yankees. This Mm, metaphor is a little bit sketchy, but it it gets at something. You go to see a Yankees game, you know you're not going to see Babe Ruth or Lou Gehrig. You are seeing a legacy. (laughs) <laughs> did, did your BS yeah, detectors yeah, right. just yeah. pin? Yeah. Well, you know, the other BS detector alarm bell that went off again and again reading your fine and witty piece is the use of the word brand. I mean, to me, uh, you know, Rob, that's just anathema to any art critic, to any true fan of art, to think of it as a brand. And yes, I know, in the postmodern era, Warhol didn't uh, often didn't have anything to do with some of the pieces that were signed Andy Warhol. He had his factory, and Jeff Koontz does that today, right? So let, let me ask you, in all the times that you have made this argument, has it ever changed anything? No, no, no. Okay. But I mean, hey, yeah. what is a critic, Rob Tannenbaum, yeah. one of our favorite colleagues, uh, if not the uh, lone wolf crying in the wilderness? <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, I mean, uh, so the critics want original band reuniting and and nothing short of that. I think that's kind of the, the, the standard you're saying. And what you're saying is that's a completely ridiculous criterion. Well, it's not that it's ridiculous so much as it's unrealistic. If you want to see a band with only its original members, I hope you like U2. Yeah. Because there aren't a lot of other bands that can do that. Right. And as I said in the article, for a Journey fan, the choice isn't Journey with Steve Perry or Journey with a Steve Perry impersonator. It's semi-Journey or no Journey at all. What is a reunion that has worked, that has Mm. perhaps equaled or exceeded the original band? Uh, Roxy Music. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Roxy Music takes a little sabbatical. They come back. They make Flesh and Blood and Avalon. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And even seeing Roxy on that reunion tour, what is it, about a decade ago, right, Greg? 2001. Yeah? Yeah. So, and, I mean, uh, you know, no Eno, obviously, and no Eddie Jobson, I don't believe, right? But it was a nice, t- it was a good tour. I mean, it was, it was, a good was tour. well done. Yeah, yeah I mean, it was a good absolutely. tour. Absolutely, yeah. All right. All right. And it meant a lot to me because I had seen the original Roxy music only once. Mm-hmm. You know, Rob, uh, one of the things that's really interesting to me is you can have the departure of some uh, member who uh, was key, instrumental, for decades at times, and it seems to matter not a whit to the audience. I, I think of the Rolling Stones. Poor Bill Wyman. You know? I mean, he's been <laughs> gone now decades. Nobody cared. Nobody nope. cared the day after he left. 
Um, and yet, you know, one of the greatest rhythm sections in rock history. On the other hand, you give a Fleetwood Mac to that audience without Stevie, right? All of a sudden, it goes down from 22,000 seats at the United Center yeah. to, if they are lucky, the Chicago Theater or smaller. Right. And Fleetwood Mac are a hilarious example because the only constant in the band is the bass player and the drummer. Right. Right. Like, you know, like most people, do people care about the bass player and the drummer? Nah, and most people don't. That's who the band's named after, though. Yeah, Fleetwood Mac, John McVie and Mick Fleetwood. But don't you think, Greg, that if Christine and Stevie toured, especially with Lindsay, right, and oh, there yeah. was no Fleetwood or Mac? Nobody uh, would care. <laughs> no. Nobody would nobody would miss those guys. They would still no. they would still go and see that show in That would numbers. be an arena show. Yeah, for that sure. That would be three nights at the arena. Yeah, absolutely. And the ultimate statement on Fleetwood Mac, I think, came in 1974 when they were on tour. Uh, Mick Fleetwood, the drummer, found out that Bob Weston was having an affair with his wife. And Mick kicked him out of the band and said, the tour's over. But they had been paid advances. So the manager decided that they were going to fulfill those dates, and he put together a fake Fleetwood Mac (laughs) who went out on the road and toured. Now, there are people who are, I, I call them reunion truthers. There are people who, who will not, thank you, who will not go see a band unless it's all the original members. And although the three of us have our own unique versions of that, right? There, there are bands for which uh, we have a, a guideline that might seem arbitrary to other people. The extreme fringe edge of that is there are people who think that the Rolling Stones ended when Brian Jones left the band. That's not the real Stones. That's true. Yeah. And I think probably most people would agree that's crazy. But everything else is just a small variation on that crazy. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm admitting that I am very conflicted. I'm sitting here today uh, chagrined now via my <laughs> Facebook feed that I did not go see Nick Mason plays the music of Pink Floyd. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's only the drummer. Right, but the set list was extraordinary. He's playing songs from Saucer Full of Secrets. He's playing. I was like, why didn't I go? I should have gone. I mean, partly I didn't go because it was like three hundred bucks. Yeah. Well, if if you had gone, do you think you would have felt happy? Um. Yeah. Probably. I'm a drummer. He's a drummer. He's one of my favorite drummers. You know. And hey, they were always in the dark lighting anyway. Mm. Who the <laughs> hell knew what Roger Waters looked like? Yeah. I don't know. I'm conflicted. Uh, So let me suggest that I have a similar conflict. Uh, I wrote this piece for the Times as a reporter. And when you're reporting for the Times, you don't really get to express an opinion. I am also a critic, although let's face it, there are about three jobs left for critics in the United States of America. Yeah. Uh, And by by the time this airs, there will be two. So one of us is going to get fired, Jim. <laughs> well, that's only because you know if, yeah. if you pledge, if you support public radio, Rob will keep our job. So while I can say that I believe Journey and Foreigner are doing service is the wrong word, but if they're making people happy, then their reunions are legitimate. 
if the New York Times hired me next week to go review a uh, quadruple bill of journey, foreigner, yes, and blood, sweat, and tears, mm. I probably would have to say that the music was not that great. Yeah. Rob Tannenbaum has been our guest on Sound Opinions. Yeah, we, uh, Rob, we, on that note, we can... Uh, we didn't learn anything. Uh, we're as confused as we were. <laughs> we're, we're. We're reassured, though, that Rob is a critic. And uh, yes. the music lives on, minus familiar faces, all joking aside. A great piece in the New York Times. Thanks, Rob, for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Now we want to hear from you, the listeners. Do you go to reunion tours? What's one band you wouldn't see or one you absolutely couldn't miss if they reunited? Call 888-859-1800 and leave us a message with your response and why. Coming up, Jim and I share some of our favorite band reunions that have worked for us, equaling or even exceeding the original. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and this week we're talking about band reunion tours. Now, in the last segment, we talked to writer Rob Tannenbaum about whether or not it's important for bands to have all their original members for a reunion. Now, we want to talk about some reunions that we actually loved and thought exceeded in some ways the originals. Jim, you're first. Well, Greg, I would uh, I would usually go to Wire or the Feelies, but I've given them more than enough love over the years on this show. I think they're they're bands that have in their second and some cases third acts uh, uh, topped or or at least been as good as the first act. Uh, but I'm going to talk about a band, the Buzzcocks. Uh, we paid tribute to Pete Shelley when he died late last year. I made this point then, and I want to reiterate it now. I think. Absolutely the most melodic band to burst out of the UK punk scene in 76, 77 with those uh, first three albums. Absolutely amazing, 78, 79. Timeless songs. I mean, Beatles good, right? Mm -hmm. Between Shelley and Diggle leading that band. They reunited, uh, I, I saw the tour, with the original rhythm section, John Mayer on drums. It was fantastic live. They were playing the old hits. And then uh, different rhythm section members uh, came in and out. But it was always the key, you know, was, was always Diggle and Shelley. So I didn't feel that the new rhythm sections took anything away. And I think uh, they made two records every bit as good as the first time around. They, there were several in the second incarnation. In fact, more altogether, if you count them up, than in the first incarnation. But my two favorites were the EP that they burst out of the gate with when they came back together in 1993, Trade Test Transmissions, and I think a really, really good record uh, in 2006, Flat Pack Philosophy. You know, one of the things we've always said is when a band comes back together, was there unfinished business? You know, and I, I think that no matter what Lennon and McCartney uh, would have done if they ever reunited after the solo years and the breakup of the Beatles. It would have been fascinating to hear them again, those two voices together again, even if they uh, uh, wrote separately, as as they often did. You know, I think Shelley and Diggle were just two voices that were meant to go together. And until uh, the band officially ended with Pete Shelley's death last year, I, I think they were fantastic.
That is the Buzzcocks with Flatpak Philosophy, the title track from that 2006 album. I loved it, Greg. You know, and a nod to Ikea, no less. <laughs> yeah, the Buzzcocks uh, still maintained a very high standard in that reunion, which was great to see. And it was also great to see that a lot of people in America, North America, got to see the Buzzcocks because that band, you know, didn't get over here that much back in its original no. incarnation. So it was great that they were able to not only get a victory lap, uh, but, you know, produce some new music that was, you know, up to par with the, with the with the great stuff that people loved originally. And that's really the key for me. When you reunite, why are you doing this? Is it is it to just simply do it for nostalgic reasons or is it to create something new and fresh that, you know, upholds the legacy that you originally had? And I, I think that was very much true of A Tribe Called Quest, the great uh, hip hop group out of New York. Here we go, yo. They reunited in recent years to play some festivals and actually put out a fantastic sixth and, as it turns out, final album in 2016 called We Got It From Here, Thank You For Your Service. The original members were all originally involved in that record, uh, MC... Fife Dog died in uh, 2016, just as the record was being completed. And the subsequent tour after that record came out was in many ways a tribute to uh, Fife Dog's legacy, in addition to playing these powerful new tracks. I think uh, the song We the People is as strong as anything the band recorded mm. in its original heyday. And it was so on the mark in terms of what was happening in the world at the time, you know, with the whole immigration debate, you know, this whole idea about closing borders from a from a group that opened borders, that was all about opening up the borders of what hip hop could be in the 90s and continued to do it in its second incarnation uh, when it came back in the last few years with with Q-Tip and uh, Ali Shahid Muhammad uh, as part of the group, as well as uh, Jerobi White, who was in the group uh, in its very, very earliest days, left amicably in 1991, and then returned appropriately enough for, for the reunion. So I think that was one of the most successful reunions I've ever seen. Oh, 
one they're talking about he hitting. Yeah. The only one who's hitting are the ones that's currently spitting. We got Jamissi Smitten rubbing on a that was a little bit of We the People from a Tribe Called Quest's really strong reunion album. We got it from here. Thank you for your service. What do you got next, Jim, in terms of a great reunion? Um, Greg, we are both huge fans of Neil Young in almost all of his many incarnations for almost half a century now. But I think every uh, dedicated Neil Young fan, certainly you and me, uh, knows that he is never better than when he reunites with the horse. Crazy horse. Um, you know, as a drummer, I, I think in particular, I appreciate Billy Talbot on bass and Ralph Molina on drums as one of the all-time, again, great underrated rhythm sections in rock history. I mean, all you have to do is listen to the way they so sympathetically, slightly behind the beat, drive uh, those Neil Young Crazy Horse classics, Cinnamon Girl, Down by the River. She could drag me over the rainbow and send me away You know, now Neil Young, you know, he, he tries on many hats, different guises. You know, he's been a synth rocker, for goodness sake. He's been a, uh, you know, a, a blues kind of a revivalist. He's done everything, right? But when he reunites with Crazy Horse, it's because he wants to rock. And I think if you look at that initial run of albums, you know, starting with Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere in 1969, and then a bunch of classics follow, Zuma, Tonight's the Night. You know, the first big reunion uh, comes in 79, 1979, with Russ Never Sleeps, and then another masterpiece in 1990 with Ragged Glory, and though you and I were the only rock critics in the world, seemingly, who thought so, yet another with Greendale in 2003. In each case, uh, many years go by before Young calls up the boys in Crazy Horse. And mm -hmm. I think just as key as the rhythm section has been Frank Pancho San Pedro. You know, he's the newcomer. He's only been around since 75. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he comes and goes. And there's been other people uh, in Crazy Horse over the years. And Crazy Horse, when Neil hasn't called for a good long stretch, has made albums of its own. Some of them very good. Um, but but there's nothing that beats those guys driving him hard. And I just, you know, I think, ragged glory, man. I can't get enough of that. Mm -hmm. Farmer John, I'm in love with your daughter. Whoa. Yeah, the one with the champagne eyes. Whoa. I love the way.
Well, there's no argument here, Jim, about uh, Neil Young and Crazy Horse. They can come back as many times as they want. They're going to still be good. I don't think they ever... I don't think Neil Young does too many things sort of in a half-hearted way. When, uh, no. when he feels ready to do something, uh, those guys are there for him every time. And I, I, I think the only thing I think about now is I hope we will get one more, you know, Crazy Horse and Neil Young record and tour. Uh, yeah. it's, oh, you never know, right? You, you, just, you just never, never know. know. So hopefully Neil will be so moved in, in the next year or two. Uh, I want to also mention a band that, uh, again, that you and I have agreed upon uh, in terms of the success of the reunion. Uh, Mission of Burma. Mm. Uh, you know, I think in its uh, original incarnation, 79 through 83, this Boston uh, art punk trio left behind some unfinished business. You know, they really only put out one proper studio album versus it's a landmark record. called it quits not because they were tired of each other or they ran out of ideas but because uh guitarist roger miller uh, had to quit for medical reasons i mean his hearing was being shattered by those incredibly uh high volume uh shows that they were playing and and Mm -hmm. at the time uh the technology wasn't there uh to protect his ears from you know from you know from total deafness uh so he quit for medical reasons but the once the technology improved uh, the band was able to give it another go in the 2000s, and um, they came up with uh, a series of records that I think more than live up to uh, what they left behind in, in their heyday uh, in, the, in the early 80s. You know, beginning with On, Off, On in 2004, right through Unsound in 2012, I thought uh, the, the trio of uh, Roger Miller, Clint Conley, and Peter Prescott uh, were at the top of their game. The original lineup playing great new music at peak volume and at peak uh, intensity for a, a, another decade uh, that yeah. they well deserved. You know, and, and given the fact that so many other artists had referenced them to people who never heard the band, I talked once to uh, drummer Peter Prescott about this, that uh, the, the number of people who saw them at one of their Pitchfork uh, Festival <laughs> shows in their 2000s reunion yeah. days probably numbered more total fans than had seen them in their original incarnation. It's and true. he laughed and he goes, that's probably true. You know, yeah. they're playing to rooms with 40, 50 people, and at Pitchfork they're playing to a, a field of uh, nearly 20,000. So it was great to see the band get that kind of recognition in its uh, in its latter days. Um, you know, let, let's go out with a track uh, called Twice from uh, one of their fantastic records from that reunion era. Uh, you could play a, a track almost from any one of them, but I, I love the Obliterati from 2006, their second reunion record. This is a Clint Conley track called Twice on Sound Opinions. Take a look inside What did you think you'd find At the 
That is Mission of Burma with a track called Twice on Sound Opinions from their Reunion Records. Uh, Now, we're each going to pick a band that's on our wish list to reunite. You know, Jim, you and I do not have, uh, we do do not relish these reunions necessarily. Because they are inevitably disappointing. But we each got at least one or two that we think, you know, this might work if if these people ever decided to reunite. I didn't want to be obvious, Greg, or I would have gone with uh, I'd love to see Brian Eno twirl the knobs of the Moog behind uh, Roxy Music as part of Roxy Music again. Um, but, you know, I, I would kill to see just once the four original members of ABBA come mm. together again on stage. Uh, it's not even, uh, there's no guilt involved. This is just a pure pop pleasure. We did a whole show once on ABBA. We love ABBA. How can you not love ABBA? If you don't love ABBA, you don't love pop music, all right? Um, you know, they went out on a high note, 1982. Thank you for the music. Uh, kind of goodbye. And they have vowed never to reunite, despite being offered the the small annual income of some nations, you know, yeah. to come back together. Despite yeah. uh, very good causes saying, please, what you could raise for just, you know, to stop global warming. ABBA could stop global warming. Now... Apparently, in the last year or two, the original quartet of Benny, Bjorn, Agnita, and Annie Fried have been recording some new songs, two of them, apparently. But uh, despite having been couples that are now separated, that are supposedly on good terms, they have no desire whatsoever to ever perform live again. Most disappointingly, Mm -hmm. they are experimenting with some uh, video technology that I think is somewhere between holograms and videos uh, that they are calling uh, avatars, but but renaming them avatars. Mm -hmm. And there is actually talk of this avatar uh, tour with the four of them in some, you know, virtual form circa 79 going on tour. Now that's wrong. That's just wrong. (laughs) I I don't want to see that. I don't mind that they are now senior citizens. You know, I would just like to see the four of them sing together one more time. Well, the two, the two women sing together as the two boys uh, propel the tunes. Uh, But, you know, maybe the new music will be good. I, I, I don't know if it'll be any good live. Yeah, you know, that's, that's a, a, a slam dunk if they decide to reunite. I mean, I, I just remember the outpouring of 
adulation that greeted that 2008 movie that with Meryl Streep, the Mamma Mia yeah. movie. Yeah. Suddenly these songs are, everybody realized, you know, they know all those songs. And if they got one more shot at seeing them perform those songs live, even if it's probably to a backing track, uh, you would, you'd be selling out stadiums all over the world, I bet. The one reunion that I think uh, would really work, uh, in part because, like with ABBA, the original members are all around, and in this case, certainly doing work, continuing to work, uh, would be Talking Heads. I love the band in its original incarnation. Who didn't, really? I mean, yeah. those first five, six records are just impeccable uh, to me. Oh, I think they were great lo- right to the end. Yeah. yeah. They may have lost a little steam with Naked in 1988, where like it's starting Naked. to turn a little bit into a David Byrne uh, thing, you know, at the expense of maybe Chris Franz, Tina Weymouth, and uh, Jerry Harrison feeling like they were equal partners in this, uh, in this mm. great new wave-ish punk quartet. Um, Byrne went on to a solo career. He hasn't toured it in a while, but he, to me, his tour from last year demonstrated that he's still very much a vital artist engaged in the now, wanting to do, to do new work. It's disappointing. The rest of the members found out that yeah. they were no longer a band through a newspaper article where Byrne basically said, the Talking Heads is done. So that's a terrible way to go out. But I do think that if Byrne ever wanted to get back in the saddle with Talking Heads, I think we'd, ha- we'd see a, a terrific show. These guys w- would not be phoning it in. Um, I- and I think Byrne's concerns about nostalgia are certainly very valid. But I think they're very capable of doing some new work. So I'm still holding out hope that in the next two or three years, we could see something like that. So we're not holding our breath, but Greg and I would love to see ABBA and the Talking Heads come back. Now we want to hear from you. What band do you want to see reunite? Call 888-859-1800 with your answer. No cheating. The members have to be alive. And tell us why. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, it's not exactly a reunion, but certainly a comeback after five years. Uh, Sharon Van Etten is back with us, great songwriter, and she uh, was in conversation with us as well as giving us a live performance with her band. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The show is produced by Brendan Banizak. Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and Andrew Gill. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey guys, this is Chris from Decatur, Georgia. I just listened to your space episode, which was really fun. 
and um, it made me think of a couple of songs. One is Radiohead's song Subterranean Homesick Alien, which is just so ethereally beautiful. I think it's their most beautiful song. Thanks for all you do, guys. Um, I will keep listening eagerly. Uh, my name is Mike Fitzgerald from Elmhurst, Illinois. Enjoyed the show about space and um, all the artists who built careers around exploring out to space. One thing that I've um, always loved is Air, the French chill-out group. There are two tracks in mind that really jump out to me. Uh, Kelly Watch the Stars is an incredible space exploratory song, but Surfing on a Rocket by Air is an incredible song about hopefully the leisurely futuristic sport of surfing when we're in space. Thanks a lot, guys. Really enjoy the show. Lee Dent from Cedar Grove, North Carolina. I was calling about your space show and favorite song about space, and I dare you to play this. <laughs> when I listen to the Carpenters, they put me in a weird place as it is, just because of the Carpenters. But the most bizarre song of the Carpenters has got to be calling occupants of interplanetary craft, which I only heard and was a huge fan of as a bisexual teenager uh, in the South back when it first came out in, I think, in the early 80s. Let's hear it. We are observing your Earth. Oh, uh, listen, Mike, I'm sorry, baby, but we can't. And it was just something about it that just appealed to people like me. And it's one of those songs that you rarely hear ever played ever again, even though you hear other Carpenter songs on oldie stations or whatever. So I dare you to play that most bizarre of all bizarre space songs by the Carpenters. Thank you. Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Hey, my name is Chris Costanzo from Chicago, Illinois. I just heard Sound Opinion on my way home from work. And you were playing space music. And my favorite space song is The Sun is a Massive Incandescent Gas, which was redone by They Might Be Giants. Yo-ho, it's hot. The sun is not a place where we could live. But here on Earth, there'd be no life. Without the light it gives. But it was originally on a space album from the late 50s, early 60s, which I played incessantly as a child. 
I've been trying to find that album. It's got a satellite on it, and um, it's got some great songs, but I know that's where they might be giants got it. Remember, my favorite planet is Uranus, and it's big and gaseous. The sun is a mass of incandescent gas, a giant. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. The sun is hot. It is so hot.